Discipline Part 1 Discipline Part 1 Cyril H. Brooks Mr. Cyril H. Brooks has faithfully served the Lord for over 50 years in the Philippines. We welcome this first of three articles on discipline, a subject largely neglected among professing Christians of this day and age. The Meaning of Discipline To begin this series of studies on discipline, it is first necessary to define what is meant. What is discipline? We shall limit our study to discipline in the local church or assembly. Therefore, we shall not be considering self-discipline wherein the child of God disciplines or regulates his own spiritual life. It must be noted that there would be little need for church discipline if believers would discipline themselves. Nor shall we be thinking about God's discipline or chastisement of his children, except to point out that he may sometimes discipline a believer through the discipline of the local church. The English word discipline is, of course, related to disciple who is a learner or a follower. So discipline is one of the means by which a believer in Christ learns to follow Christ as a disciple. It is part of the teaching that goes along with discipleship. Therefore, in the local church, teaching the truths found in the Word of God is a part of discipline, in fact, it is a very important and primary part of discipline. If we do not teach believers how they ought to live for Christ, what right have we to judge them when they do not live as they should? Too often we tend to think of discipline in the local church as only judging those who do wrong, and then taking steps to put them right. These phases of discipline would be less needed if we paid more attention first to teaching. In that letter which Paul wrote to Timothy regarding conduct in the local church, we read, Command and teach these things, attend to the public reading of scripture, to preaching, to teaching, take heed to yourself and to your teaching. 1 Timothy 4 verses 11 and 13, 16 RSV However, what happens in the local church when some believers do not listen to the teaching, or having listened to it, yet do not follow it? Or what about those believers who will not discipline themselves nor heed the discipline of their Heavenly Father? Then the church, through its elders, will need to go on to the next step in discipline, for the time has come for judgment to begin at the household of God, 1 Peter 4 verse 17. There will need to be warnings, rebukes or perhaps even a strong reprimand. We will examine these in more detail later. Generally not all of the believers in a local church will need such warnings or rebukes, and certainly only a few will have to be reprimanded by the elders. There will therefore be many instances where such will be done personally and privately to the persons directly concerned, Galatians 6 verse 1. Occasionally, even these fail to achieve the desired purpose so that it then becomes necessary to proceed to other phases of discipline. However, in all phases of discipline one thing must be kept clearly in mind. The purpose of discipline is not, and never should be, simply to punish or humiliate a wrongdoer. The aim must always be to help believers to be better disciples. If they have gone astray, we want to restore them to a closer walk with the Lord and to a happier fellowship in the church. If a child of God has done wrong we want to help him repent and turn away from his wrongdoing. Some Christians seem to resent any form of discipline, possibly because they misunderstand its aim and purpose. Discipline should never be vindictive or punitive. Always the aim should be to help the Christian live a better Christian life. God's discipline shows us two things, his love and our relationship to him as his children, Hebrews 12 verses 5 to 6. In the same way, Discipline in the church ought always to be an evidence of Christian love. 
Through it, the elders can show their loving concern and godly care for the spiritual welfare of their fellow believers. As bishops or overseers they are responsible to take care of the church where God has placed them, 1 Timothy 3 verse 5. So they take care of it as fathers take care of or rule their families. A good father will discipline his children because he loves them. He teaches them by example and by word, sometimes he has to warn or rebuke them, sometimes he may need to spank them. Faithful elders ought to have such a genuine love for those in the church. In love they will teach the word, in love they will rebuke or warn when necessary, and, if more stern measures are needed, these will be carried out in love and humility, with fairness and much prayer. The Need for Discipline Let us now think why it is necessary to have discipline in a local church. There may be some who think it is not really needed and that elders should not interfere in the private lives of church members. They may say, after all, the way I live is my own responsibility, or, it is something between the Lord and myself. I want to suggest five reasons why discipline is needed in the local church. First, God desires that there should be order or proper arrangement in the church. Without such order there will be confusion or disorder and God is not the God of confusion. Therefore, all things should be done decently, becomingly, and in order, 1 Corinthians 14 verse 40. Without discipline we shall not have the order or arrangement that God desires. This chapter, 1 Corinthians 14, is a good example of this for it gives regulations as to the use and exercise of some gifts. This is part of discipline so that our services will be conducted in an orderly manner and according to the teaching of Scripture. Second, God has appointed authority in the church and discipline is one of the functions of those he has placed in authority. We recognize that Christ is the head of the church, so that his word and his will are the supreme authority in the church. The New Testament also teaches that under him who is the great shepherd there are under-shepherds who are to pastor the flock. Thus the elders who are also called bishops or overseers are responsible to take care of the church. The Holy Spirit has made them overseers so that like shepherds they can take heed of and feed the flock, Acts 20 verse 28. Elders have a major responsibility for teaching which, as we have seen, is an essential part of discipline. Third, discipline is needed so that the assembly will have a good testimony for Christ in the local community. Even unsaved people expect Christians to live more honestly and better morally than they do. When a believer sins he not only brings reproach upon the name of Christ, but also upon the church where he is attending. So an assembly which tolerates careless living or sinful habits in its members will not retain the respective people in the community. Discipline of erring members will be an indication that we do not treat such conduct lightly. Then others around will be more easily convinced of our sincerity and also of our faith in the gospel message which we preach. Fourth, we all recognize, surely, that God desires His children to live holy lives, 1 Peter 1 verses 14-16. Since a local church is made up of individual believers, it stands to reason that the church should display holy living which is pleasing to the Lord. The spiritual power of any church depends upon the lives of its members. The question is sometimes asked, what would your church be like if every member was just like you? We should live holy lives because God wants us to and not because we are afraid of being disciplined. However, sometimes we need the help of church discipline so that we will live as we should. Fifth, church discipline not only helps us to live as believers should, it helps to maintain harmony and fellowship within the church. One of the most frequent problems in any church is the friction caused when members cannot get along happily with each other.
One way that the devil uses to hinder the Lord's work is through sowing discord among believers. Sowing discord among brethren is an abomination that God hates, Proverbs 6 verses 16 to 19. Too often, such discord is sown by brethren rather than by the unsaved outside the church. Since discord can cause so much trouble in the church, the elders will be alert to lessen or eliminate it, if possible. This is part of needed discipline. Erroneous teaching is sometimes a cause of discord. Those who bring in wrong teaching must be disciplined. However, there are times when the trouble is not something that can be labeled as definitely error or unscriptural teaching. It may be something about which there may be legitimate differences of interpretation. Yet some brother may insist on harping upon his own interpretation or upon some minor matter. Some seem predisposed to majoring on a minor. Such insistence of one's own viewpoint may disturb the minds of some or lead to factions within the assembly. When such things are persisted in, they need to be dealt with by the discipline of the elders. Some Forms of Discipline As mentioned earlier, there are different forms of discipline. Some seem to think that by discipline we only mean putting a person away from the fellowship of the local church, in other words, excommunication. But this is only a last extreme when all other forms of discipline have failed. At first it was stated that teaching the truth from the Word of God must be a primary part of discipline. This is clearly exemplified for us in 1 Corinthians, in which there is so much about order in the church. We just mentioned briefly some examples which the reader may study more fully by himself. There were dissensions and quarrelings in that church at Corinth, so Paul pointed out the error of such things, ch1. He taught them the wrong in going to law against a brother, ch6, the right approach to marital problems, ch7, about such problems as eating meat offered to idols, ch8, about the support of Christian workers, ch9, about head covering and observance of the Lord's Supper, ch11, the use of gifts or abilities in the church, ch12 and 14, and the truth of resurrection, ch15. All such teaching is an essential element in discipline. Human nature being what it is, even in believers, there will probably always be some who do not respond to the teaching. The next step in discipline would be admonition, rebuke or warning. Later on we will consider how to administer discipline but right now let us look at some verses that go a step further than teaching. Elders should be respected because they labor among us, are over us and admonish us, 1 Thessalonians 5 verse 12. These elders are to admonish the idol, 1 Thessalonians 5 verse 14. The word for admonish or warn literally means putting in mind or a firm reminder. The idle or unruly are those who are disorderly or insubordinate, for this word means not keeping in step. There are those who are uncooperative or unwilling to work amicably with others. In Thessalonica some believers were idle and unwilling to work for their living. They had to be warned that if they did not work, they should not eat. Any brother who is lazy and unwilling to earn his own living ought not to be helped materially or financially by his brethren. 2 Thessalonians 3 verses 6-13 The expectation of the Lord's imminent return, a truth prominent in the Thessalonian epistles, is no excuse for such conduct. While we should live as if he may come at any moment, we can plan and work as if it might yet be a long time. Such people were called busybodies which is paraphrased by W. E. Vine as some who are not busied in their own business, but are over-busied in that of others, see also 1 Timothy 5 verse 13. Paul realized that some would not heed such admonitions. 
So he says that we are to keep away from any brother who is living in idleness and have nothing to do with him, 2 Thessalonians 3 verses 6 and 14 RSV. So where admonition fails there has to be avoidance. Such unruly Christians are to be taken note of so that others may dissociate from them. This seems to mean that we show our disapproval of such behavior by our attitude toward these men. Or that we refrain from being too friendly with them in a social way. Yet this attitude is modified in that we are not to treat him as an enemy but should continue to warn him in a brotherly way, 2 Thessalonians 3 verse 15. Those who create dissensions and difficulties with regard to teaching are also to be noted and avoided, Romans 16 verse 17. As we have said, there are those who insist on their own point of view on some unimportant matters. We are to avoid stupid controversies, discussions about genealogies, dissensions and quarrels over the law which are unprofitable and futile, Titus 3 verse 9. Such people magnify the importance of some minor issue out of its true proportion. By insisting on their particular viewpoint on some lesser matter they cause dissension and division in the church. They are described as heretics or factious, Titus 3 verse 10. They keep harping on one detail or on the interpretation of one verse and are unwilling to listen to what others have to say. If after two admonitions, they still persist in propagating their peculiar views, they are to be refused. The elders have a right to stop such men from spreading their ideas in the assembly. Such insubordinate men must be silenced, Titus 1 verse 11. It is sad but sometimes true that it may be an elder who has sinned. This is more serious because as a bishop or overseer he should have been an example to others. Any accusation against an elder needs to be verified by adequate testimony. An elder should not be condemned on the word of one man, no matter who he is, for two or three witnesses are required. Such an elder who sins must be rebuked publicly so that this will serve as a warning to others, 1 Timothy 5 verses 19-20. It will be seen then that there are several forms of discipline short of excommunication. This is a last resort needed only in cases of serious, open sin. Such sins are immorality, greediness, idolatry, reviling, intoxication or theft, 1 Corinthians 5 verse 11. As we consider some examples of discipline in the New Testament we will take up the outstanding case in this chapter and see what is involved. Discipline Part 2 Discipline Part 2 Cyril Brooks Some Examples of Discipline It will be helpful in our study of church discipline to look at some examples in the New Testament. There are not many such examples. For one thing, we do not have a detailed history of the early church and what examples are given are to reinforce the teaching on this subject. Possibly there was not much need for discipline in those apostolic days when the Christians were often persecuted. Persecution does have a purifying effect. Ananias and Sapphira The case of Ananias and Sapphira, Acts 5 verses 1-11, was exceptional in several ways. Though it affected the church and concerned church members, yet it was carried out by Peter alone. As an apostle, through the Holy Spirit, he had unusual discernment to recognize the insincerity and deception of that couple. Today we are not able to discern motives or intentions, though we may have some suspicions. If the secret was well hidden, we would more likely have commended such a couple for generous giving. The penalty also was unusually severe. 
It was an act of God rather than of Peter and so was a warning to all believers throughout the history of the church. God looks for sincerity and honesty in our giving. Differences between brethren In Matthew 18 15-20 our Lord tells what steps should be taken in regard to differences between brethren. This is an illustration rather than an example of discipline. When a brother feels he has been wronged or sinned against by another, he should first go directly to the offender. If he makes this approach with love and in humility, certainly not in a belligerent manner, he may be able to clear up the misunderstanding, effect a reconciliation and win over his brother. Verse 19 makes it clear that if the two agree and are brought into harmony, then their prayers will be answered. If that fails, the offended one should make a second approach in company with one or two others as witnesses and arbitrators. If these two or three effect a reconciliation, because they gather in the name of Christ, then there will be a realization of the Lord's presence, v. 20. Of course, verses 19-20 do have a much wider application, but we should not overlook the immediate context. If the offender refuses to listen, then the third step is to take the matter to the local church, no doubt through the elders. If this third step fails, the church must act in discipline. Whatever the first offense may have been, there has now been added to it the sin of obstinacy, if not of rebellion, cf. 1 Samuel 15 verse 23. For this he is to be treated as an unbeliever, that is, he is to be deprived of the privileges of church fellowship. Yet there is also here an implication that some effort should be made to bring him back to repentance. Hymenaeus and Alexander. Paul refers to two men who had been disciplined, 1 Timothy 1 verses 19-20. These men, Hymenaeus and Alexander, had made shipwreck of their faith because they had rejected the promptings of conscience. Careless conduct often leads to doctrinal error. Note how Paul links faith and conscience in 1 Timothy 1 verses 5 and 19 3 verse 9 2 Timothy 1 verses 3-4. Evidently there was a group of persons involved in some kind of sin. These two men were singled out, either because they were leaders of that faction, or because they went further and blasphemed. Presumably it was one of these two, Hymenaeus, who is mentioned in 2 Timothy 2 verses 16-18. For these verses it would seem they were guilty of godless and foolish discussions which upset the faith of others. They also erred in teaching that the resurrection was already past, cf 1 Corinthians 15 verse 12. Paul wrote that he had delivered them unto Satan. Commentators do not agree on the meaning of this. The same expression is used in 1 Corinthians 5, which we shall consider later. A. G. Newt writes, it might suggest adversities supernaturally inflicted, or simply excommunication. The phrase would then describe the removal of the person from the sphere where God rules, to that where Satan has sway. It is remedial discipline so that these men, through it, might learn not to blaspheme. It certainly does not mean a loss of salvation. Whether or not these men were truly the Lord's, they had named the name of the Lord, at least as professing believers, and therefore should have turned away from iniquity, 2 Timothy 2 verse 19. The experience of Job may throw some light on the meaning of this phrase. Satan complained that God protected Job by putting a hedge around him, Job 1 verse 10. Then God permitted Satan to attack Job within the limitations set by God. Could we say that Job was delivered unto Satan? While discipline was not the primary purpose in Job's trial, yet he did learn more about his wrong ideas of God and about the sinfulness of his own heart. 
Another hint as to the meaning of delivered unto Satan may be gleaned from our Lord's words in Luke 22 verse 31, Satan demanded to have you, plural, that he might sift thee, singular, like wheat. Satan wanted the bars lowered so that he could attack and tempt the apostles. In the case of Peter it led to his denial of the Lord, verses 34, but in Judas it resulted in betrayal, John 13 verse 27. God used this attack of Satan as a sifting experience so far as Peter was concerned for it removed from him the chaff of self-confidence and boasting. Diatrephs In his third epistle, the Apostle John mentioned a man who needed to be disciplined. In the unknown church to which John referred there was a man named Diatrephs. This church leader was evidently a domineering man who liked to put himself first, one who affects primacy over the church. He refused to recognize the authority of John as an apostle and spoke evil against him. He asserted such power in that church that other elders seemed powerless to deal with him. John wrote that if he went there, he would bring up this man's deeds. We are not told the outcome, but we may presume that John's presence and authority did enable the elders to deal with that man. Incest No doubt the outstanding example of discipline is what we find in 1 Corinthians 5. When Paul wrote this letter to the church in Corinth he was greatly perturbed by what he heard had happened there. He was specially shocked that a case of gross immorality was being tolerated. In those days the city of Corinth was notorious for vice and immorality, 611. Yet in the church there was a case of immorality at which the heathen people would have raised their eyebrows. One of the members was living with his father's wife. Apparently this referred to the stepmother and possibly the father may have been dead or divorced. Such an incestuous relationship was forbidden under the law, Leviticus 18 verse 8, and certainly called for firm discipline in the church. Paul strongly criticized the church for being puffed up with pride, for being arrogant when they should have been mourning over such a situation in their midst. The guilty man's conduct was inexcusable, but he might have been restrained had there been a more spiritual attitude in the church. Let it be emphasized here that when such sins occur it is not the time for self-righteous condemnation of the offender. Rather we ought to grieve over our own failure. Believers do not suddenly fall into such depths of sin. There must have been a gradual departure from the Lord first. Those who are spiritual ought to have detected those first signs of weakness so as to help a weak brother. If the Christians in Corinth had not been so occupied with their party rivalries, their petty jealousy, strife and pride, they would have been more ready to help one another and to pray for one another. They should have mourned, not only over the erring brother, but also over their own laxity and carnality. Paul reminded them that their boasting was not good, verses 6, for they had nothing of which to boast. The leaven of malice and evil needed to be removed, verses 8. They needed to deal with their own carnal ways which like leaven were having a permeating effect on the whole church. Not only did they need to discipline the guilty man, they needed some purging in their own lives. A threefold authority was invoked for disciplining that guilty member. First, the Apostle Paul, the one who started the work in Corinth, had already made his decision on the basis of the information he had received. Second, the church was to gather together with regard to this matter. While the elders would no doubt have to verify the facts and make their decision, the discipline was imposed by the assembled church, acting as if the apostle were physically present. Third, the authority of the apostle and of the local church was reinforced by the authority of Christ. He is the head of the church and they decided and acted in his name and under his power, 
verses 4, Matthew 18 verse 18. We have previously considered the meaning of deliver this man to Satan, but note this added word, for the destruction of the flesh. Two interpretations of this may be suggested. Flesh seems to be used here in contrast to spirit so could refer to bodily suffering or even physical death, cf 1130. The body was the vessel or instrument used in this sin, cf 618. Or, flesh could mean the carnal nature, meaning that the man would learn through this discipline not to yield to fleshly lusts such as immorality. It could not mean, of course, the eradication of the sinful nature. Nor would it mean the loss of salvation for the man's spirit would be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus, cf 315. This discipline also involved excommunication, for the guilty man to be removed from among you, verses 2, they were to drive out the wicked person from among them, verses 13. Furthermore they were not to eat with such a person, verses 11. Thus he would be debarred from partaking of the Lord's Supper, and possibly from normal social occasions. They were not to associate with anyone who called himself a brother who was living in such sin. There is a hint here that there was perhaps some doubt as to the reality or sincerity of that man's profession of faith. In a previous letter, which is not of the New Testament, Paul had warned the Corinthians about associating with immoral people. Here he clarifies his meaning. In the normal course of life, in business or in government, we may be compelled by circumstances to mingle with and perhaps eat with some unsaved people of dubious morals. This cannot always be avoided and we are not called upon to judge such unbelievers, much as we may disapprove of their conduct. However, with those who are believers or who claim to be, things should be different. Disciplinary action must be taken by the church against those who are practicing open sins before others. Besides the immoral, Paul mentions such as covetous or greedy, idolaters, railers or revilers, drunkards and extortioners or robbers. These would not be cases of a single lapse into such sins when a child of God might be suddenly overtaken by some temptation and then immediately afterwards be filled with remorse. A brother who before his conversion had been addicted to liquor might through weakness yield to temptation. If he showed real contrition, he should not be disciplined for that one failure. However, if he continued that way, it would call for discipline. For such open sins bring reproach upon the name of Christ and upon the testimony of the local church. Discipline Part 3 Discipline Part 3 Cyril Brooks The Way to Discipline the way in which discipline is exercised is most important if it is to be effective. A surgeon performing a delicate operation needs to be careful lest he cause harm instead of healing. Discipline carried out in a wrong spirit or in a wrong way may harden rather than soften an offender, or it may cause strife or division in the church. Permit me to suggest five essentials required in the way we should discipline. Surely love must come first of all. Love covers a multitude of sins, 1 Peter 4 verse 8. Not that love condones or excuses sin, but that it does not expose it to public view by gossiping about it. For lack of wood the fire goes out, and where there is no whisperer, quarreling ceases, Proverbs 26 verse 20 RSV. This verse comes back to me over more than half a century because it was read after an announcement of discipline in the assembly where I grew up as a young man. Just as Shem and Japheth covered the drunken shame of their father, Noah, Genesis 9 verse 23. So we ought not to publicize the guilt of an erring brother. 
Our love and regard to discipline may be displayed in three ways. First, because of our love for the Lord and for His honor, we want to be faithful to His word in the administration of discipline. When we are motivated by love for Christ we will desire that He should be glorified, even in the unpleasant matter of discipline. Second, there must be love for the church and for God's people as a whole. Our aim will be to maintain the spiritual purity of the church. Our prayer will be that the Lord's people may be built up or edified through such discipline. Third, there must be love for those who have done wrong, even though we hate what they have done. The one being disciplined is to be treated as a brother and not as an enemy. 2 Thessalonians 3 verse 15 Where it is evident that several are going astray there should be teaching to show them their error. However, where only one or two are involved, the first stages of discipline should be done privately with those concerned. In this way we can possibly spare them some public shame and avoid gossip by immature or unspiritual Christians. When only a few have done wrong, they ought not to be criticized or attacked from the platform in public preaching. Even if no names are mentioned, others will probably know who is being referred to. It is a cowardly use of the pulpit to publicly attack another through the sermon, especially when the preacher is not willing to talk personally with the person concerned. Reproofs should first be administered privately, James 5 verses 19-20. If there is love, there will also be humility. Much harm has been done by those who tried to put others right in a proud, censorious and self-righteous spirit. Our self-righteous pride may be a greater offense in the eyes of God than the sin we want to discipline. It may be the beam in our own eye that prevents us seeing clearly the speck in our brother's eye, Matthew 7 verses 1-5. If we are spiritual in our endeavor to restore our erring brother, we shall approach him in a spirit of meekness, in humility, considering our own weakness and shortcomings, Galatians 6 verse 1. Such reproof will be like healing oil and not like a cudgel, Proverbs 27 verses 5 to 6, Psalm 141 verse 5. Then too there must be faithfulness in following God's word in these matters. Through this we shall avoid indifferent discipline or an unwillingness to do what needs to be done, just because it will be unpleasant and irksome. Elders then will not shirk their duty even though it involves some special friend or relative. When we are faithful to the scriptures, we shall avoid dilatory discipline, a failure to act promptly when the facts are unmistakable. On the other hand, we need to avoid unwarranted discipline by going beyond what the scriptures teach. There are some matters of conduct that are left to the personal decision of the individual believer, Romans 14 verses 4 to 5. Where such things are clearly not against principles set forth in the word, they are not cause for discipline. We may not always agree with what others do, but there has to be some latitude in some areas of Christian conduct. Things like this could be discussed privately to clear up misunderstandings among believers. Another essential in discipline is impartiality, 1 Timothy 5 verse 21. There should be no bias or prejudice on account of social standing, James 2 verses 1 to 4. Or personal relationships. We should act only on the basis of reliable evidence as to the facts of the case, so far as these can be determined. It is good to follow the biblical rule of two or three witnesses, Deuteronomy 19 verse 15, Matthew 18 verse 16. This is particularly true when accusations are brought against an elder, 1 Timothy 5 verse 19. Elders should try to be objective in their decisions. Sometimes it is good to think if we would make the same decision if some other person were involved. It is well to beware of the extremes of being either too lax or too severe. 
Needless to say the offender should have every opportunity to hear the accusation and to defend himself. Finally, there should be no discipline without much prayer. Pray for wisdom to sort out the facts upon which a decision must be made, James 1 verse 5. Pray for a right attitude that will include all the above-mentioned essentials. Pray that God's will may be known so that we will do what He desires with regard to His children. Only the Lord knows everything for He alone knows our thoughts and motives. So much prayer is needed for His guidance. It is important that elders pray for all concerned in cases of discipline, and better still, if they are able to pray with them. Of course, there will be prayer that the erring one may be restored to the Lord and to the fellowship of His people. The Objectives in Discipline There needs to be some definite objectives and aims in church discipline. We should know what it is we are trying to accomplish, what purposes we have in mind. Some of these aims have already been mentioned, but will stand repeating. We will think of them in four ways, with regard to the disciplined person, to the elders, to the local church, and to the Lord. So far as the one being disciplined is concerned, our aim should be his restoration, first to the Lord and then to the fellowship of the church. It ought to be our constant prayer and desire that he repent and come to a knowledge of the truth, 2 Timothy 2 verse 25. By bringing back one who has wandered from the truth we can keep him from going further into sin and from a more severe chastisement, James 5 verses 19 to 20. Previously we have seen how the immoral man in Corinth was disciplined, 1 Corinthians 5. We cannot be sure whether he repented and was restored, though this is a definite possibility. Commentators are not agreed whether this man is referred to in 2 Corinthians or whether it was some other opponent of the apostle. Some statements there do not seem altogether applicable to the immoral man. Some suggest another letter was written by Paul between those in the New Testament and that this is the one referred to in 2 Corinthians 3 and 4. However, even if the immoral man is not the one mentioned, the principle still holds true. The punishment by the many was enough, for it had accomplished its purpose. So now they should rather forgive and comfort the man lest he be discouraged and overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. They were to reaffirm their love for him. Just as Paul had acted with them in discipline, so now he stands with them in forgiveness. In discipline, they had acknowledged the presence of Christ and also now in forgiveness. 2 Corinthians 2 verses 5 to 11. When there is evident repentance and a sincere confession of guilt, we must forgive the erring one, for that is what the Lord does, 1 John 1 verse 9. He then can be restored to the fellowship of the local church and again take his place at the Lord's table. If the discipline was publicly announced, then the restoration should also be announced publicly. Then everyone can show their love for the restored brother or sister by the warmth of their welcome. Let us try to forget the unhappy past and not talk about it anymore. However, it takes time for wounds to heal. Also, we must consider the testimony of the assembly. So for these reasons, the restored one should not expect to immediately take any public or prominent part in the services, services, unless it would be a personal testimony. Later on when others have a renewed confidence in his spiritual restoration he may take a more active part. The exercise of discipline is a solemn responsibility for the elders. They are not engaged in a witch hunt, looking for wrongdoers, nor are they seeking opportunities to show off their authority. But on the other hand, neither dare they ignore wrongdoing which affects God's people. They are to take care of the church, 1 Timothy 3 verse 5, 
to tend the flock of God and be examples to it, 1 Peter 5 verses 1-3. When there is need for discipline, it should be a challenge for them to search their own hearts. Have they failed to fulfill their duties or to be the kind of examples they should be? They are guides or leaders who are to keep watch over the souls under their care, Hebrews 13 verses 7 and 17. Another objective in discipline already mentioned is to maintain the purity of the testimony of the local church. We cannot expect to have an effective witness for Christ where sin is tolerated. The sin of one man, Achan, brought defeat to the nation of Israel, Joshua 7. We have seen how Paul referred to purging out the leaven in connection with discipline, 1 Corinthians 5. The leaven of malice and evil must be put away. Though Paul's rebuke hurt and grieved them it was a grief that led to repentance, 2 Corinthians 7 verses 8-16. He had been concerned, not only about those directly affected by the discipline, but about the whole congregation, v.12. So discipline should make us all realize more fully that sin is no little thing, not something that can be excused or glossed over. God demands holiness from His people, 1 Peter 1 verse 15. Since we are all members of the body of Christ, we must have a mutual care for each other, 1 Corinthians 12 verse 25. None of U.S. can live just for himself and his own interests. Romans 14 verses 7 to 9. The ultimate objective looks forward to that day when our Lord will come again. We are to seek His honor and glory now because of His purpose at His coming. Then He will present the church to Himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish, Ephesians 5 verse 27 RSV. May we not anticipate that day by taking out some of the spots and wrinkles now through loving care and wise discipline? In all phases of discipline, our concern will be for the greater glory of God and for the honor of His Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. In all our deliberations and decisions the paramount thought must be how may God be glorified and Christ honored in spite of all our failures and shortcomings? Some Practical Suggestions It has been suggested that this series of articles on discipline might be concluded with some practical suggestions. Let us suppose there is an actual case needing discipline in a local church. Let me emphasize at the outset that the following is an imaginary case. If it in any way seems to resemble some real situation, this is just a coincidence. In writing this I have no particular person or place in mind. We will suppose that the elders in a certain church have received a report that a brother, or it might be a sister, there has been guilty of immorality. This is chosen because it is a sin which is unfortunately much too common, but it could have been something else, like gambling or crooked business practices. Let's call the suspected person A for anonymous. A has not been attending the services very regularly in recent months and he has been seen with unsaved companions quite frequently. At this point nothing more is known, though there are rumors. Following what we learned about forms of discipline, the elders will no doubt suggest some teaching on the need for attending services regularly, Hebrews 10 verse 25, and the danger of unsaved companions, 1 Corinthians 15 verse 33. Even if A is absent, the teaching will be a helpful reminder to others. Of course, this teaching will be general so no names will be mentioned or suggested. Yet more specific warning will also be needed. So the elders should arrange for two brethren, or possibly sisters in the case of a sister involved, to visit A to talk with him and counsel with him. Perhaps he has some personal or family problems which have become a stumbling block in his spiritual life. 
With prayer they should show him the teaching of the scriptures and counsel him to live for the Lord and point out the spiritual dangers of careless living. Later on there are reports that I has not paid any attention to those warnings. The reports seem to indicate the possibility of immorality. The elders will need to carefully and prayerfully look into these reports. It may not be easy to sort out the facts from gossip, but an honest effort must be made to learn the truth. The elders will need much spiritual wisdom and discernment. They themselves should avoid discussing these matters with others except where it is necessary to learn the truth. Their decision as to the discipline has to be based on the facts in the light of scriptural teaching. While it is the elders who ascertain the facts and make the decisions, the discipline is imposed by the church as a whole. The elders should have gained the respect and confidence of the believers so that they will be ready to endorse the decisions made. The discipline should be announced when the church is gathered together, 1 Corinthians 5 verse 4, and usually the best time for this is at the close of the Lord's Supper. Such announcements of discipline should not be made in a public meeting where unsaved people and outsiders are present. This is a family matter and should be kept within the family, meaning the local church. The manner of making such an announcement is important. It should not be included with or tagged to a list of other announcements. There must be an atmosphere of solemnity so that everyone will realize the seriousness and sadness of such open sins. It should be strongly emphasized that there should be no gossiping about the matter. Rather there should be much prayer for the sinning member that he may be restored to the Lord through repentance and confession. Also, there should be much heart-searching by each one. Did I contribute to my brother's failure by my carelessness or by my lack of love and of prayer for him? Sin in the congregation is an occasion for mourning and grief, 1 Corinthians 5 verse 2, certainly not for condemnation or criticism. I vividly recall one such sad occasion when there was possibly not one dry eye among those present. It is not surprising that the brother disciplined soon repented and was restored. It is quite likely that A has stopped coming to the meetings and may even have told someone that he no longer considers himself a member there. In this case, should the elders just drop the matter as if no further action is needed? Personally, I do not think so. Though it may seem futile to put away one who is no longer there, there ought to be some record of a decision in the matter. In announcing the discipline taken, it could be mentioned that A is no longer attending the meetings, yet the elders felt they could not overlook what had happened. This would make clear the position of the assembly. Then, too, if A ever comes back desiring fellowship again, there would be grounds for finding out if he truly repented of his past misdeeds. He should not be permitted to slip back in as if nothing wrong had ever happened. We live in an age of permissiveness and in a world where just about any kind of conduct is condoned. So discipline is unpopular and is often subject to protests of various kinds. The spirit of rebellion and self-will is rampant all around us. In the church there may be a tendency to be lax with regard to discipline. It is one of those unpleasant duties that most of us would prefer to avoid. Yet godly order in the church requires it. Some of the sting may be lessened if we remember our Lord's example, for the Lord disciplines him whom he loves, and chastises every son whom he receives, Hebrews 12 verse 6 RSV. Let all concerned recognize that discipline must be an evidence of love for those who are in the family of God.